the Purpose Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. We're all about delivering great content, thoughtful discussions, and tips and tricks to help you truly get the most out of your life and business. And here's your charismatic host, me, Matt Brown. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is for you right now, welcome to your day and our interaction together. I'm Matt Browning, your host of the pod. I have an exciting interview coming your way today. It's with a, uh, a powerful negotiator, Eldana Luis Fernandez. Now, Eldana is, uh, is a retired Air Force veteran. She's been with the Air Force for 23 years of honorable service, and she's been negotiating contracts for over 30 years uh, with leadership, with contract management and negotiation experience, everything from a dollar to a $100 million contracts. She's been deployed to the Middle East after 9-11. She has experience in foreign acquisition. Uh, she is just a rock star when it comes to this work. Now, you might think, why do I need negotiation? Why do you not need negotiation? If you are an entrepreneur, and heck, even if you're like you're not, you'll never be in business or you don't do sales, you can negotiate everything. So Eldana actually talks about, and we talk in the interview, about how you can negotiate anything in your life. So whether it's the price of a cantaloupe at the grocery store, you can always negotiate. Believe it or not, people will negotiate with you. So she loves negotiating prices. She loves negotiating for the kids to take out the trash, for your loved one to eat, make a dinner, whatever it is. Uh, I think we can all use the skill set of how to find a win-win scenario where whatever you want to have happen or whatever someone else wants to have happen, you find a way to make sure that it can be win-win for everyone. So that's what Aldana's been doing for years and years. Um, Aldana's become uh, a, a friend of mine. I've known her for, I think, coming up on five years, maybe longer. We're part of the same mastermind together, part of the Rockstar Marketing Mastermind with our friend Craig Deswalt. And... Uh, I've just I've watched Eldana come through and just continuously grow her private enterprise business, um, and I'm really excited for. Her. I'm proud of her. She does amazing things. Uh, we talk about you know everything from Eldana growing up, um, what it was like, and you know why she went into the military at such a young age as a female in the first place. Uh, Thirty years ago, when she went in, it, it was uh, it was a different landscape. So we talk about that, and we you know ha- have some hard hitting questions on on what it's like as a female in the military. We also uh, talk about what it's like to you know, have top secret clearance. She has top secret security clearance and has been a trusted agent of the U.S. government for 30 plus years. So once she left the military, she went into the private sector and began negotiating, um, sometimes on behalf of governments, uh, for, for contracts. So she's done some huge contracts. We talk about what it's like to negotiate on those huge contracts. Uh, We also talk about uh, some of her books like Think Like a Negotiator, 50 Ways to Create Win-Win Results by Understanding the Pitfalls to Avoid. So I'll have some links to her books on Amazon in the show notes. So make sure you go check them out. There's some great books. She also, for all the ladies out there, um, she has a wonderful book called Heart of a Military Woman. Heart of a Military Woman. Um, she's in there. It's all about stories from women who serve the, our country. Um, so you want to listen to her. By the way, she also rides a Harley. She resides in Orange County, California. And I think you're just going to really, really enjoy this interview. It's uh, it's powerful. It's fun. Um, strap in, get ready, and let's let's uh, check out my interview with Eldana Luis Fernandez. So here we are. 
finally. I've, uh, I'm so excited you made it to the office, uh, to the podcast studio. We've been, uh, I'm ex- excited about doing this interview with you, uh, picking your brain and, and just ultimately just catching up because I've known you for years, Eldana, and I'm excited to, uh, to finally have a chance to sit down and, and discover a bit more that maybe I don't know yet. So thanks for making it all the way in from Irvine. Uh, huge deal to come down to John Wayne Airport area. So thank you. Yes, it was such a big schlep. I mean, I could have not gotten on a freeway to get here. Yeah, you, literally, you take service streets, right? <laughs> and I used to live in Irvine, so I, well, I've been all over Costa Mesa, and I know the area. And uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for you? having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, you having a good week so far? I am. Nice, good. Um, so I want to I want to jump in and just find out. Um, well, I want to let people know a bit more about you. Um, and for me, I'm always so intrigued. I've been listening to to a new podcast, uh, n- not that new, I suppose, um, by Jocko. Have you seen Jocko yet? No, I haven't. All right, so Jocko, he's he's a Navy SEAL, and or an ex Navy SEAL. He's been in the SEALs for 20 years, and he's all about you know New York Times books and and you know just a really really great you know great Instagram, great podcast guy. But he's been having a lot of um, military and a lot of veterans on, and for me, I've never been in the military. None of my family, well, I, I take that back. My mom's dad, my grandpa, was in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we were never a military family. Um, it never, like, permeated our culture at all. Um, I've always had a, a distant reverence, if that makes sense for it, you know, where I don't have that, that personal experience, but I realize how impactful and how important it is. So I'm really, I've been looking forward to finding out a bit more. I haven't really heard a lot of stories uh, from you. you. You're a veteran from uh, the Air Force for 23 years, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, to be a career Air Force as a woman, of course, which is a huge deal. Um, and now you're doing, you've been, for years and years, you've been doing uh, negotiator work and teaching negotiation. Um, but I want to start a little bit, what, what got you into the idea of even going to the military in the first place? How did that happen? It was a big by chance kind of thing. I came from a pretty rough background, alcoholic parents. My mother died of alcoholism when I was 12. And my father basically checked out and sat on the couch, drank beer, smoked cigarettes, didn't say a whole lot to me. Wow. Yeah, and it was, uh, he didn't discipline me, he didn't guide me, no leadership, nothing. And just absent. Just absent. He now, Was he military also? Or no, 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 nobody was. And uh, I dropped out of high school, I was running with the wrong crowd. And when I turned 18, he up and left. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, came home one day to an empty house, note of eviction on the door, and he had gone. Oh, my gosh. And was it just you and your dad at that time? Yeah. Okay. W- where was your mom? Uh, she died when I was 12. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. I so, didn't know that. Yeah, alcoholism. So mm, mm. anybody who's grown up in that kind of environment knows that you you have a lot of self-esteem issues. You know, get. I got told that I was no good for a long time, so I believed it for a lot of years. And, sure. And... Uh, so after my dad left, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, and I actually got my GED, and one day I saw this commercial about the Air Force that said, Air Force, a great way of life. And I thought, hmm, that sounds like an it's adventure. Gotta be, gotta be better than eviction. <laughs> yeah, so I ended up joining the Air Force when I was 19, and only intended to stay four years, wanted to get my bachelor's degree, and. Sure. First four years, I had three years of having fun and a year of school, so I ended up re-enlisting to finish my school, and then one day I woke up and it was 23 years later. Wow. Did, when you were 19, did you feel like, was it genuinely exciting, or did it, 
Were you in a place where you didn't feel like you had options and you're like, well, I might as well do this? Like, what was the mindset when when you really said, okay, I'm going to do this? Because I think people could think that, but I'm curious, what was the internal experience for you? Or was it like, well, what should I do? And you know what? That looks great. It, w- it was kind of along those lines because I was looking at going to college. I thought, well, I can go to college. I'll probably have to take a loan for that. And it, that's probably going to be a tough road. And and I, I the commercial just made it sound like, oh, let me go check this out. And I was always one of those, and I guess I'm still a little bit like that. I have to think about things through sometimes. It's like, ah, let's go do this. This looks like fun. And I did. And I, it was kind of a snap decision. And I just kept going with it. Like, okay, I'm going this direction now. This looks like a fun thing to do. And I'll get training in a good job. And um, I can get a degree while I'm in the military, or Mm -hmm. I can get money for education. And okay, this looks like I was going nowhere fast. I was working at a a high-end department store in San Antonio in the fabric department. It was high-end though. Right. It was. Yeah. And it's a big deal. It And, but there was no real career in that, and I really didn't know what I was wanted to do. And it's not like I was – I dropped out of high school because nobody really cared, and I didn't mm. – the, the teachers didn't care. What I, age were you when you dropped? Was it like 16, 17? I dropped out when I was 15. I went back again when I was 16, and then 15, I dropped that, out again. So was that your sophomore year? Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so my sophomore year, I, I probably wanted to drop out. That's when I started, like in my freshman year, I started dabbling with drugs and with alcohol. And by my sophomore year, I was pretty much – ditching all the time. And, and, and I got kicked out of two schools, went to continuation school. Um, you might've heard some of that story. Um, but it's just interesting, you know, like I, I could have easily stayed away and I don't know what, what pulled me in. I just was hanging out at continuation school, but then my junior year, one day I got sober and decided, Oh, I, I guess I should probably finish this and, and change. And it was this, this pivotal moment at like 16, almost 17 years old that shifted when, so you're on your own basically since 12, hanging out with your dad did, did you have to like i don't want to go down too far down this like family road but i'm I'm really curious did you like kind of have to take care of like the house or take care of your dad or did he do everything but just not take care of you what what was the what was that like for those those four or five years or six years i guess yeah well when my mother died my father and i don't know why maybe it was he flipped out emotionally he sold the house and everything in it he shipped me off i have a sister we're half sisters same mother different father actually my mother left her father for my father so that's oh, wow. way back in the day and that's very interesting but so i got shipped off to be with her that summer and when i came back I had nothing. He'd sold everything, like all my childhood memories, all my oh mother's my stuff. I didn't. It was almost like a fire had happened. So I came wow. back and, and there was all new furniture. And I had he had saved a few things, but he sold all my childhood stuff that I cherished. He, he got rid of my mother's artwork, things that I really cherished. I didn't have an opportunity to even save any of that. So that that really jacked me up. And I basically went you grow up in an alcoholic family, you have to learn how to survive that. My parents were raging alcoholics long mm-hmm. before. Actually, my mother was a raging, and my father was a passive alcoholic. So I would just stuff my feelings. Oh, here we go. Stuff it and move on. Stuff right. it and move on. Might as well. Yeah, so I just kept on going. And he he had somebody come in. Like we moved, He moved us into a, a little two-bedroom apartment, and he would give me money for food because he wouldn't eat. He'd maybe have a TV dinner once a day. Mm. But um, I would ate a lot of fast food as a kid. He thought he was doing, oh, here, go have some 
here's some money. Here's go some eat. money. Go to McDonald's. Yeah. Yeah. So I ate a lot of fast food. I never really learned how to eat nutritionally. I didn't have, you know, there's never, never, never another Christmas, never another Thanksgiving, never another birthday celebration. It was just something that I had to survive. And I kept going. I, it's not like, oh, this is, I'm doing something bad with my life. It's kind of like, this is just the way life is. This is just the way life is. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes, you know, being in Orange County and now it's 2018, you know, as we're recording this, um, sometimes it's it's easy to forget that, like, if, if your basic survival isn't taken care of, that's all the, that's really all the focus is. You know, we don't have time to go, oh, what kind of yoga am I into most? And is this the best price for organic broccoli? You know, like, we're not thinking like that. It's just, yeah. okay, well, let's get up and, and do another day. I got to get through today and, and figure out what, and it's not necessarily terrible, but it's not great. It's just it is what it is. So it's just a very, just straight up feeling that way. Are you? Are you? Uh, were you close with your sister during that time? Well, she was. Ba- she it was kind of in and out when I was a kid, and then when I was fifteen, they were supposed to move. My father had bought a house. I think he was trying to give me a family life, mm. and my sister and her husband and two kids at the time. So they're much older, or. How much older is she than you? She's 13 years older. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so it was a whole like raise my family and then and then your mom remarried and then had you as well. And then are you the only child in, in that family? Yes. Okay. And she, they were going to move to San Antonio, but he, her husband couldn't get the job level that he wanted with the telephone company. So at the last minute they pulled the plug. And so my father cut off all contact with him. I lost contact with her for 20 years. Wow. And where, where was she living at the time? She was in Philadelphia. Oh, okay. So you're in San Antonio. She's in Philadelphia. Wow. So, so for 20 years you hadn't, you hadn't seen her. Right. And when, when, how old were you when you reconnected? 35. Wow. Well, what, uh, how, how did that come about? Well, the, and I had attempted to find her before, mm-hmm. but there, with no internet, obviously it was very hard to do. So I never was successful, but I, 1995, I was stationed in England. I'd been over, over in 1996. I mean, I was stationed over in England and, uh, one of my coworkers and I had been talking about it and, She's like, oh, you know, the Red Cross does relative searches. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Oh. And I had I had attempted to find other avenues. Like I contacted the Salvation Army. They said, do you have a Social Security number? Well, if I had that, I'd be able to find her myself. <laughs> right. And I had, I had attempted things that are looking in the phone book or whatever. But with the Internet coming on board, I had found a website that had um, – I guess search for your relatives. So I posted something there, and and I was a little hesitant, I guess. And she said, "Oh well, let's call." I'm like, "I don't want to call." And I went, kind of went back into working. And then she gets on the phone and calls the Red Cross. Oh well, she's right here. Let me put her on the phone. I'm kind of looking at her like, oh, "Really? Wow. You you called the Red Cross? This is not going to work." So I get on the phone with them, and they said, well, "What information did you had?" I I had her name the what I thought the street was she lived on, what I thought was her birthday and her husband's name. Okay. That's so all the information I had. And they said, Oh well, don't get your hopes up. That's probably not 
enough to go on, but yeah. we'll see what we can do. Wow. And that was about two weeks before Christmas in 1996. And I remember on Christmas Day thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool Christmas present if they found her? She called, the, she called the next day. Are you serious? The Red Cross had found her through her uh, ex-husband now, his employment. He worked for the phone company and retired there. And they found him. They contacted him. He contacted her. She contacted the Red Cross, who gave them my info. And I was in England, so it was a phone call wow. to England in the middle of the night. And uh, So they're like regular private investigators they back are, then. They, they are. That. Wow. What... what uh, was it was it happy? Was it tearful? Was it awkward? Well, I was. It was like one in the morning in England, so I, okay. I was kind of like, "What? Who is this? What? What? They found you?" And okay, and we actually, I went there and took my kids in March, uh, mm. March of the following year, and s- spent some time. And she came over that summer and went on a trip. We were going on a motorcycle trip across Europe with a bunch of people, and she came and wow. drove the car with the kids. Oh my gosh! And, yeah, and and then we spent Christmas with her, and and she lived with me for a couple of years when I came back. And she's uh, on the East Coast now, and we talk now and then. But you know, it was, it was I found. Finding her, I also found uh, my aunt and uncle who lived out here. My uncle passed this year, but I was able to reconnect with them and my cousins and other family wow. members. And so it was like I was an orphan, and then I kind of had a family again. That's incredible. That um, and I, I know you know both of us share a, a similar faith background, and I know one of the, one of the big um, kind of I call it theological, or I guess just like a, a, a moment of faith for me is understanding that you know god adopts us into a family and and there's so much uh teaching so much love about um going from being an orphan to being adopted right that that when you're when you're with god when when he's when you're there you're in the family right you're in the kingdom you're you're part of that um and you had like a very real experience of that um did you grow up in like in the church or or in faith or is that something you found later in life well, I, I don't think I've really heard this story. Yeah, as a, as a kid, my mother would go take me to church now and then. And then after she died, I really, I, the church, well, actually, as she got closer to dying, she died of alcoholism, and she got more and more out of her mind, so she stopped doing a lot of stuff. And what's interesting in my sixth grade teacher, and this was still when you could pray in school and sure. things like that. She had some of those uh, chick publications, the little tracks. She just laid them out on her desk okay, and said, said anybody can take as many, you know, these. And I, I took one. Wow. And um, on the back, there was a, a little prayer that you say to accept Jesus. And I said that. And how, and you were, this is just before your mom passed? Yeah, sixth grade. Oh, wow. And then after she passed, I was involved in church for a while. But then as my life started going I just started running with the bad crowd, and I was drinking, doing drugs, and things like that, and yeah. and uh, got in the military, and and uh, reconnected with somebody. There was somebody in my office that invited me to church, and I rededicated my life there. And mm-hmm. then, unfortunately, my husband and I divorced, and so I, you know, I kind of strayed. I was still, I always had my faith, but there had been times when I haven't necessarily been. Doing what I, what I do now, which is daily prayer and sure. and connected with the church and doing things in church and doing things like my whole life is surrounded by that now. Yeah, wow. So I, I, I'm always so curious on people's uh, people's journeys. 
because um, in our like in, in the seminar space, there's a lot of people that I've come very close to that grew up in the church or with a particular religious background and then have walked away as they got to their teens or 20s because um, whatever experience, right, whether it was hypocrisy or whether it was hurt or pain or, or something. And, and then sometimes kind of coming back to it or going in a different direction. But my, my journey is very different, right? Like I, I grew up not in any kind of a, a church or religious or, or faith-based place. Like, you, you know, I went to church a couple of times, you know, here and there. My parents, they didn't really go, but like my dad, I think what happened is every now and again, it felt like, well, if we're a good family, like, you know, that's probably a, a thing when you're healthy, you should go to a church because that's what people do. And, 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 you know, so it was the right reasons, I guess, but, but there was never really a, this is what we believe. There was no real spirituality in the house, nothing like that. Um, so for me, it wasn't until I was in my early 30s, mid 30, yeah, 32, 33, I think, um, that I really had a massive encounter uh, with Jesus and had a whole transform, transformative experience. So for me, I, I like, I, I look at it very differently, right? As I look back and I think, man, I'm so grateful for where we, I am and where my family is right now, right? My wife and my son, and, and that we have this because I grew up without it, right? Not knowing it. Um, just it's, it's always so interesting to watch how, how to me, right? And again, if you're whoever's listening, everyone has a, their different belief, their backgrounds, et cetera. But for me, I love watching how God works in people's lives and how, um, how he's always there, but we have this experience of either being close, being far away, coming close and leaving, coming back again, like, you know, just always having those different unique experiences and, and knowing that he's never left ever, right? Never, right. never again an orphan. Well, I'm, I'm a bit of a control freak and I've always been, well, I'm, a, I'm a recovering control freak. <laughs> oh, let's good say for that. you. Yes. Good for you. But it's always like, oh, I can do this. I don't, you know, I'll do this myself kind of thing. I don't, I don't need God. I'll just keep on going. And, yeah. and so I'd pull away and then it's kind of like, what am I doing? And, and. It's very interesting how he's always been there, kind of like, we just get a clue and plug in because I have some things I want you to do, but yeah. if you're going to be doing the seesaw thing, can't be having that. So, right. yeah, it's it's very interesting to look at the different paths my life has taken and the different choices, some bad, some good, but it's all brought me to where I am today, and I'm grateful for it. Yeah, certainly. Now, um, when wh- wh- what were some of the, the stations? So you were in England quite a bit in the Air Force. Excuse me. Um, what what was the main the I guess I don't know the main position or your uh, your ranks? Again, I, I don't know a lot about the Air Force, so so smart me up on this. Um, what what was the twenty three years like? It was phenomenal. I it was very interesting. I didn't intend to get into the career field I got into. I mm-hmm. wanted to be a computer programmer, which at that time oh, was so a, join the Air Force. Right, right. It, it, well, they they. So show just, you all these jobs. And I thought, oh, computer programming. And I, it wasn't on the list of jobs when I went to get my physical and, and actually pick a job. So they said, oh, well, you can go in. It was an in, considered an administrative career field at the time. Now, actually, for being a high school dropout, I did so well on the t- test, I could have gotten into just about any job in the Air Force. Really? Yeah. It's, it's kind of amazing. When how you're going after computers? <laughs> right. It was interesting to me. And, and that, of course, that was back in the day at the start of the whole. I mean, those were big mainframe computers at the time. So took they up said, a whole room. Yeah, it took up a whole room. And, and they said, well, you can you can choose your job when you get to basic training. Well, little did I know there was slim, slim to no chance that that job would be 
available to me, but they gotcha. don't tell you that. So I go off to basic training and I'm in basic training and we're running and we're doing all the stuff that you do to learn how to become a just shooting weapons and doing obstacle courses and learning all the, the customs and courtesies and things about the Air Force and sure. learning how to make a bed to where a, a quarter could bounce off of it. I've always heard that story. Right. Yeah. And but I've never been able to figure that out. I, I, but it's I, not I about making a bed. It's not about making a bed. No, it's not about making a bed. Oh, see, here I am this whole time feeling like a failure because I can't bounce a quarter off my sheets. Right. It's all about learning how to do something in excellence at a high rate of speed Mm. and to be able to get yourself in a in a mindset where, okay, I have to do this in excellence and I have to figure out how excellence is and have to make it happen fast. Right. And and also, obviously, like a habit, too. Right. Getting into the fact of like a daily habit. Start the morning with excellence. Um, I still love that. Like I, I still, so, someone, you know, long time ago, I just heard, you know, make your bed every day. And, and for years I never made my bed cause I didn't have to. And, and then one day it just kind of felt like, man, even though I'm going to go back into it and mess it up the next night, <laughs> right. Still would like to, to, to go back that night and see this kind of mess of sheets. Like, oh, it just doesn't feel good. It feels like I'm being sloppy in life. So there was just that little thing of like, let me just pull the covers up. I don't, you know, I don't do military style, but I just... <laughs> Just to make it enough, right? Just to keep things kind of high and tight to a certain point. It really it starts your day out right. It does. It's a level of discipline. Plus, it also you've accomplished something. Do you still make your bed? I do. Do you every day? Uh, every day. Every day. Do you, do you make it the same, or have you relaxed on the uh, quarter bouncing stat? No, no quarters bouncing. But there's a blanket there for the cats to lay on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, no cat blankets in the Air Force, though. No, no. no. So where did you land then? So, so the computer programming job may or may not have been available by the time you finished basic training. Um, where did you land in your first, like, kind of the career spot? Well, I went in to choose my job, and there was this little list of jobs, and it had the score required. You had to take a, a aptitude test to get in the military, and it had the score required for each of the jobs. And there was one job that had a really high score and a bunch of other jobs that, that had really low scores, like less than half of the other jobs. So my thought process was, you must need to be smarter to do this job than these jobs, mm. so I'm going to pick this job. That's the only reason I picked it, didn't know what it was. What'd it, you pick? Contract specialist is what it was called. Con- contract specialist. Right, which is basically contracts management and negotiation. So. Wow. So the very, and how old were you? Was this right away? 19. Like 19? Yeah. You go, you go to basic training, you're there. It's now eight weeks, but it was six weeks when I went in and you go to basic training, you pick your job or you get your job and then you go to technical training school. So I went to tech school at Lowry Air Force Base in mm-hmm. Denver, Colorado when that was open. Wow. Four weeks of training on contracting and then got sent to my first base, McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida and started training as a contract specialist. Wow. So what would you, well, first off, let's just take a second and realize that's incredible. At 19, you didn't even know what it was, but you fell into essentially what you're, you've become a uh, widely known expert. I get your book sitting here, by the way, I'll plug that later, but this is Think Like a Negotiator. Um, if it's, it's just incredible, right? So, so you've become this huge expert negotiator in your, in your field, really one of the only ones, um, like I'm sure there's other negotiators, but you're the only one that I can think of that that is this is the specialist that you are an expert in. It's amazing. And you accidentally kind of got into it at 19 because of an aptitude test and you didn't even know what a contract specialist was. I didn't. And we went to 
the base for tech school and there we were having an in brief and somebody said does anybody want to know what their job is so i raised my hand and they read it off purchasing administration of contracts negotiation contracts etc cetera, etc cetera. so that i was like oh okay that sounds good yeah i'll, I'll do that one Right. Yeah. So went to my first base and I, the first section I was in was the follow-up se- section. So we followed up on delinquent orders and my trainer, who had three stripes to my none, I had zero rank. I was mm-hmm. known as an Airman Basic E1. Okay, yeah. She said, this is what we do. You call the vendors and negotiate new delivery dates. And I thought, what? Why would I negotiate new delivery dates? Right. I thought negotiation was this big boardroom of people heavily haggling over a multi-million dollar deal, which it is, but it's also negotiating a new delivery date with somebody or making an arrangement of where you're going to meet for dinner or how to get your kids <laughs> to do their homework. <laughs> it's all negotiation. Right. But I froze because I thought, I don't know how to negotiate. What What does that even mean? Right. So so how how long did it take you to start to feel like you were getting getting a, I don't know a, wrapping your mind around it um, I, w- I won't say being like proficient yet but how long did it take you to really wrap your mind around okay I, I get it I get what I'm doing here was it pretty quick or or was it a, a longer learning curve Well so there's a funny story that goes with that. So I, I'm in the follow-up section. You have to pick up the phone and call vendors. Well, I was petrified. I was petrified to speak in front of people. Really? I know that you find that hard to believe. <laughs> You've heard me talk a lot. Yeah, yeah. you speak uh, I was a ton now. petrified to pick up the phone and talk to somebody. It And it goes back to my la- low self-esteem and lack of confidence and that my mother's voice in me telling me I was no good and mm. I was she was going to send me away somewhere and I was a hellion and a spoiled brat. That was the, the tape that was playing in my head. Yeah. And my trainer's like, okay, here you go. You're, you got to pull these files, call the vendors, mm-hmm. and start negotiating new delivery dates. And I looked at her and I was like, would, would you do one? <laughs> and so she does one and she shows me what she does and she's ready for me to do it. And I, I got to go to the bathroom. So I jump up and run to the bathroom because I'm petrified. Yeah. And I, I tell this story sometimes when I speak. I come back and I sit down and I pick up the phone and I'm stuttering and stammering and, and the the person is asking, What do you what, what do you say? I'm caught talking real fast and they can't understand me and they 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 said, Well if you don't if you don't slow down and tell me what you're saying, I'm gonna hang up the phone. So I panicked and I hung up the phone. <laughs> And that's on your first call? Yeah. That's epic. That is epic. My trainer's over there looking at me, just shaking her head. But then this is where a, a trainer or a coach or a support system comes in. She mm-hmm. came around behind me basically energetically and was, you can do this. You saw what I did. Take a deep breath, slow down, pick up the phone and call. And I did. Did and you call it, back the same person? Yeah. And, and Hi. Well, and then it's funny. They were they were like, well, I'm glad you called back instead of that psycho that called before. Which was her? Which was me. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't realize I was calling back. It was me calling back because I was like, is everyone going to follow up on an order, please? We're like, what are you, what are you saying? Uh, so, so, so you're coming going, hi, I'm so sorry. This uh, A new person called earlier. I'm taking over now. And luckily, they didn't get your name. Right. That's phenomenal. Yeah. So how long did it take till you really started feeling like, okay, I, I get what I'm doing here? And was it was it, was it pretty quick or, or was there a ton to learn? I don't know how what goes into well, that. Well, that particular 
section. I mastered that pretty quick because it was not a whole lot to mm-hmm. it. And then I moved on to different sections throughout the contracting office. And I was a commodities buyer buying supplies, small supplies like pens, pencils, paper, small widgets, whatever, you know, office furniture, anything. I was buying all kinds of stuff. And then I got moved into... So what, what sorry, let me interrupt. What, what goes into um, negotiating to buy a pencil for the Air Force? Like, what is that process like? Because I imagine, so for me to buy a pencil, I go to Staples. Or if I'm going to buy pencils for my small office here with a small team, we're going to go order from Amazon or, or Staples Business and get, you know, uh, a case of some boxes of pencils and maybe get a slightly good deal, 10% off. What does it look like to negotiate for the Air Force? Like, what kind of quantity would it be? What kind of time frames? How, how, how does it even, like, what's the structure like? I'm so Well, so there's a, um, you could call it an office supply store on base. And some of those things are sourced from from Skillcraft and Federal Prison Industries. Well, now it's called Unicor, where where the Skillcraft are like industries for the blind, severely handicapped, yeah. would make those things, and they would those would come under certain contracts. But there were some things oh, wow. that that I would purchase to fill that store, and then anybody on base, they had an account, they would go and and buy, so to speak. It would just come out out of their account, mm-hmm. uh, office supplies for the for the office. So perhaps I was, maybe there was paper or something. Well, I'd be cases and cases of paper. And some things at that time were under a um, mandatory government contract. So there were government contractors that had, it was called GSA, General Services Administration contracts, where you would have to go only to those vendors. But if it's over a certain dollar amount, and at that time it was $500, you had to get competitive bids. And depending on your office, you had to get either two or three competitive bids. So you would go out and and get bids from people, and that's how you would award those contracts. Uh, Negotiation came into more of a, a forefront when you did service contracts where you would you're putting out a requirement for a big service and then you would be asking questions like okay your statement of work your your bid said th- this about the statement of work and we need clarification on this and this and then you, you need to come back and have discussions and we'll have yeah. a best and final offer or whatever would you get bids from multiple different places then oh yeah yeah and what kind of quantity would you be, let's say pencils right like what, what kind of quantity are you looking at trying to get a bid for? Is it like 5 million pencils? Is it is it 500 at a time? Is it like... Probably it just maybe a, a caseload, depending on how... The same thing with supply and demand, depending on how much was used. They would, they would when it got below a certain stock level, like I worked in a uh, place called GOSES, Government-Operated Civil Engineering Supply Store. So mm-hmm. we purchased all the supplies for civil engineering, like plumbing and and different hardware and lumber, plywood, all that electrical, all that type of stuff. So they would have any of those kind of things that has a stock, they would have a minimum stock. And once it got got to that or below that, they would send in a requirement to order to replenish. And it depended on... So faucets, you're just like, oh, we're running low on faucets. So let's replenish our faucets. Right, exactly. it's funny, like, I, I don't think a, lo- a lot of people might, and maybe they do, but I didn't realize, like, I don't think of military often and even different branches as, it's like their own little city, right? It really mm-hmm. is. You, have, you need every supply, you have to have your own stores, your own space, all, all the bathrooms, all the everything. It's this whole little world, and, and, and you were responsible to negotiate basically for all of it. 
Like that's in, in, incredible. Um, did you during the when did you start riding a motorcycle? Was that in the military? Was it was about uh, 1996, right before I went to England, and I was riding on the back with my husband at the time, and he took me for a ride, and I thought, I want to do this. And where'd you live then? In Tucson, Arizona. Oh, okay. So, yeah. you know, nice landscape. Yeah. Yeah, kind of chill. So you're riding on the back and, and loving it. So what happened then? Did you just go test drive some? Did you go out and be like, screw it, I'm buying a motorcycle tomorrow? How did that well, work? It, what so, was your first bike? Uh, it was a 883 Sportster, kind of a big bike nice to be Harley. your first bike. Yeah, Harley. Yeah, 883, that's a good bike. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it felt huge. For They're me still at first, them. yeah, they do, and now it's not so huge because I have a '98 Softail, which is a lot bigger. Oh yeah, but uh, it's in the military. If you're going to ride a motorcycle, it's mandatory to take the motorcycle safety course. I didn't know how to ride a bike; I could barely drive a stick shift car. So, <laughs> the whole you know shifting and all that was just kind of way over my head. So I signed up for the course. And I couldn't get in for a couple months, but in the meantime, there was they have a lemon lot where people that are going to other bases or whatever, or or just wanting to sell vehicles, put their vehicles up for sale. They call it the lemon lot. It's not that they're oh, lemons, the lemon lot. Yeah, the lemon lot. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so there was this beautiful eight eighty three maroon burgundy color Sportster, nice. and uh, I bought it, and you know, he rode it home because I couldn't ride yet, and. I love it. Big mistake, though. This is something I, I talk about in some of my talks, is he thought he'd teach me how to ride. Oh, yeah. That's always a good idea. Not. No. <laughs> not. Very bad idea. One of the things I say is to never let somebody who's not a trained motorcycle rider coach teach you how to ride a motorcycle. 100%. I agree with that. I mean, he jumped on the bike. He hopped on the back. He said, oh, this is how the clutch throttle and shifter works. We ride around the block a couple times. I don't have the whole clutch throttle shifter thing down. I start to let out the clutch. And, you know, it starts to go. Yeah. Freaks me out. I do, the, I do this on the throttle. A thing shoots out from under me, hits the ground. I like running the house screaming. I'm like, oh my forget gosh. it, sell it. I'm not doing it. Well. What a good first day. Right. And so I'm I'm done. I've decided I'm done. Like I'm going past the bike. He rolls it back in the garage. It had like a ding in the tank, a couple yeah. things like broken, but not, not too bad for the har- sure. horrible crunching sound when it hit the ground. But I'm like going by it like this. I'm not looking at that bike. Forget it. But I'm in the military. I own a motorcycle. I've signed up for the motorcycle safety course. Fair. It's now mandatory. It's now mandatory. You can't go, oh, I don't want the bike anymore. That's not how the military no. works. I own a motorcycle. I've signed up for the course. I have to show up. So was the course put on by the by the military? Or well, was it's, it a- it was, it's a motorcycle safety course, but it was on the base put on by the military. Some bases have them. Other, otherwise, you can like the state runs them. Or yeah, because the one I did was like a highway patrol. It was like a right. um, CHP uh, sanctioned one, yeah, right. CHP course, but then put on by whatever independent school. Yeah. And I did a civilian course, you know. But I still, I, but I, I fully agree with you so much on that. Like, because uh, I never rode a bike for most of my life. I think you, you, we've talked about that a bunch. Um, but I started riding, you know, it was like about three years ago. And I had a lot of things happen, I guess. I'm going through this midlife crisis where <laughs> everything changes. Um, I started yeah. riding when I was 35, so. Oh, I started riding at 35, too. Then. Yeah. So there you go. And, and I, I, I love it. But the first thing was like, man, like now I'm 35, right? I'm not, I'm not 20. And 
I, I saw a lot of people, I've known friends for years that always rode bikes. And when, when you're 18, 19, 20, it's, oh, let me get on. Let me just figure it out. Let me just, how fast can it go? And I know not everyone's like that, but it was all about how fast can I go? You know, you try to, you learn how to scuba dive. How deep can I go? Right. But, you know, in, in my 30s, it was like, if I'm going to scuba dive, who cares how deep I can go? I just want to know it's going to be an enjoyable experience. I'll go 20 feet down. I'll be happy. And same thing with the bike. I don't care how fast I go. I want to make sure that I'm safe, that I live. How, you know, what's the helmet rating? <laughs> you know, I got a kid. Like, I'm thinking of all that stuff. So I love that two-day class. I mean, I don't think it, we even rode for the first day. It was just getting the equipment and how do you get on and off and neutral yeah, and starting it yeah you don't literally even, you sit there at the on the chair first and like okay here's your here's your clutch here's your throttle yeah. and but, then you sit on the bike and it's kind of like you get all that down before you even start it yeah and then it was kind of like start it put it in neutral put it in first put it in neutral stop start turn it back stop, off yeah. get back off right but, but and as, as mundane as it can be if because i've had friends that have taken the class after they they got a bike they sign up for the class, but they're like, ah, let me try it. So they start riding anyway. They, you know, they get pretty good. Um, but man, that was so useful to, I, th- I think there's a lot in there where you can certainly jump into something, but you can also jump in prepared um, and, and, and doing something one step at a time. You know, so I, I think about the motorcycle safety class, same as, you know, starting a business or getting into a relationship, you know, like how often in a relationship, you know, someone meets and they're like, that's awesome. And it's just like finding that 883 Sportster. And you're like, let's go. Right. <laughs> you're like, hang on a second. Why don't we like, I still, uh, this is exciting. This might be very, the right thing to do, but let me first, you know, let me get to know you. Let me go out. Let me have some conversations. Let's have a coffee. You know, let's go through and really get to know each other or the business. Let me, let me do some research. Let, let, let me talk to some people. Let me do um, my preparations with financial planning, you know, and one by one, you can go through stuff. Um, are you... Are you that kind of a person, would you say, personality-wise? Um, do you tend to be more of the planner, the the visionary that, like, I'm going to plan it out, I'm going to get ready, and I'm going to execute when the time is right? Or are you, like, the, oh, good idea, let's do it, and you just kind of jump in? <laughs> what, what's your what's your personality style? My go-to is the jump in. Is it? Right. And I've... Which I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have guessed. Right. I, I don't... I... I'm a planner to some extent, but it, I I think in my later years, I'm like, okay, this jump-in thing doesn't work so good. Yeah. I mean, it's, but that's part of the prepare and advance strategy in, in my Think Like a Negotiator book. I mean, it's the same thing I'm doing with, you know, I'm doing this whole thing in Kenya, this project in Kenya with these women and making these beads like the ones I'm wearing. And I'm I'm wanting to make it go, but I'm going very slow because I want it to go right. Right. So that so you'd say that's something that you've you've had to like for me, I've had to curtail my personality. So I'm a very like think move, right? So I come up with an idea and I want to move and then I'll work out the details later, right? It's kind of the, the ready fire aim sort of like personality. So I've had to, same thing over the years, realize, hey, that doesn't work all the time. So even though I feel like I'm ready to go, I might need to stop and think about it. Or I'm learning to say no to things. Or I'm learning to prepare even though I don't want to prepare, right? Um, Has that been similar for you? Like, did the military teach you more of the preparation? Or was it the opposite? Was the military like, hey, 
get you know get down there and figure it out when you get there what, what was the personality like that you had to to adapt um all through the air force it's it's kind of both because when you're when you're stateside and you're not in a uh, deployed environment it is more planning especially the contracting process there's a whole lot of steps to do depending on the dollar amount and sure. depending on if you're going to get competitive bids if you're not how much paperwork how many approvals how many forms you have to fill out how many memorandums you have to do and, and it gets more and more increased with the dollar amount. But when you're in a deployed location, it's kind of like, okay, we're here to buy and get the mission done and figure out the paperwork later. I went to, actually one time I went to Beaumont, Texas, when we were going to, this is way back in the late 80s, when we were going to build a uh, base and a runway in Honduras okay. to fight the drug situation over there. Wow. Well, I went with a b- briefcase and a handshake and... I had funding, but it wasn't like I had cash, and it was before they allowed or before they got smart and gave people government credit cards to make purchases. So it was all like handshake, purchase order later. And I bought up probably a quarter of a million dollars of uh, civil engineering supplies to put on a ship to go to Honduras. Wow. And it was, okay, we'll figure the paperwork out later. And I showed up in my uniform with a bunch of other guys in uniform and shook hands and said, we need this, and we needed to go over there to that dock, and it needs to be put in that container, it needs to go in that ship, and it needs to be done by X time. Okay, you can have it. And then when I got back to the base, and I scrambled to get all the paperwork done. Wow. So I, I didn't imagine that it would be like that sometimes, but it, it really is. There's a lot of uh, kind of handshake cocktail napkin sort of initial negotiation or initial contracting. Yeah, what was interesting, I was deployed to the Middle East after 9-11, and I was in an operation where we had a couple of Army guys that were—I was on a a base with a 1,000 people. And where, where did you land? What area? It was uh, Doha, Qatar, or Qatar, depending on how Qatar, you okay. want to say it. But we and we were uh, taking supplies and stuff. We had planes going down into Afghanistan, taking things down there. So we had some army guys on the base, some Canadians, and and about I don't know seven eight hundred Air Force personnel, and the rest were Canadians and Army. And we so we had a couple Army guys in there that were buying things, and their requirement was to go back to the states and get three bids. Now, when you're in a deployed location, all that kind of three bid stuff goes out out yeah. the window. Well, and it's you're like, halfway around the world, right? Too. It's like get the, and and we had stuff that there was a guy before me that was buying a lot of stuff from from the states and it was getting stuck in customs or it'd be half they'd get half the items and so then you'd have to go buy stuff anyway so i'm like okay we got put here to do good relations and i actually dealt with a couple sheiks and people like the the guy who a guy who was married to the emir's daughter and and so we were supposed to be doing business with them so i was like okay we're not going back to the states for anything because i ran the contracting operation over there we're going to buy everything here and we're going to get it quick and then we'll worry about the paperwork later when we get back to the office wow thinking and, on your feet yeah and it was like i had a, a suburban a guy with a bag of cash in a backpack and i had a little pad of purchase orders and a list and we would go place to place buying stuff a suburban and a cash a, a backpack of cash yeah that sound that sounds like when we're <laughs> we're talking uh you know, we, we have a good mutual friend, Craig Doeswalt, and he always tells us stories about touring with Axl Rose. It sounds like same thing. I got, I got a I got a babysit Axl Rose, and I always have a wad of a whole boatload of cash to get him out of trouble. So you're driving around Qatar looking to purchase stuff, going, we got money. I got a Suburban. I'll pick. Wow. That's 
what an incredible experience. So how, how does military negotiation compare to, I don't know, corporate negotiation? I know you've, you've done some training for, uh, was it Southern California Edison? It's one of yes. your clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've, you've done some training for some, some pretty well-known like companies. How does negotiation differ or how is it the same? when it comes to what you did in the, in the Air Force versus what you're doing in the, I don't know, the civilian land? Well, when I retired, I went to work for a couple of defense contractors. I worked for Raytheon and Parsons. So I was on the other side of the table, and it's a different game because the government runs the game, and you have to know how to play play that game. And people think that, but oh. you knew. Oh, well, yeah, I knew. You knew because you've been on the other side I of the I actually table. challenged. We had um, an award fee contract and award fee is like, okay, you have your normal stuff, and then, okay, for this period, they look at your performance and decide what percentage extra to give you as an award fee for doing a good job or a so better like job like than a expected. Bonus to yeah, a like, a, like a bonus. And they, they cut our award fee by a percentage, and they said, because of this. Well, that thing that they cut it was in a different period. So they were penalizing us for something they couldn't during that award fee period, and I brought it to their attention. Huh. So they had to end up giving us that money back. Or Which equate you don't need to share dollars unless it's a okay. I guess it's anonymous. But um, what what kind of a what kind of total amount are you t- like? Would you be roughly talking about for an award fee? Like, is it thousands? Is yeah, it, it was it was it was thousands. It was like in the f- five figure dang. thousands that we got back. So that's a pretty big deal. I mean, th- these are sizable contracts. Right. What, yeah. What what, si- what t- um, price range contracts are you typically negotiating when you're in the defense contractor space? Like what's the low or the high roughly? Uh, the ones I had, I had a lot of software development and some uh, parts contracts and such for the F-18 radar. Okay. That's, that's the section I worked in. So, I mean, it could be anywhere from a couple hundred thousand up to millions. And right. I, in the Air Force, I worked on a $104 million aircraft maintenance contract. Now, I took on the contract after it was awarded, but then even during the administration period, you Constant have to... negotiation, have to, though. And I actually, I share this about this when I speak, using your leverage and influence. And I was told that the guy who ran the contract for the contractor was a former F-4 fighter pilot in Vietnam, and he was basically going to eat my lunch, eat nails for breakfast. So I thought, how am I going to show up in the power position? I mean, even though I'm the contracting officer and I have the power just by that, how am I going to show up so he doesn't attempt to bully me out of the gate? Right. Rode my Harley over there. Did you? I did. I had the leather jacket with the fringe, and I walked in there with what my helmet under my arm. Great idea. Oh, it was like it was it was classic because I was. I mean, I'm not that big now, but I was even tinier then. <laughs> and so I walk in there, and the first guy comes up and he looks down at me. He's like, hmm, "You a new contracting person?" Yes, yep. I am. He was about six three, so I'm looking up at him. He's like, "Oh, you have a helmet." It's one of those half helmets, right? Of course it was. Yeah, you have. So this is in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And let me tell you something about there. There's a lot of one percent outlaw bikers there. So there's that stereotype back then that anybody who rides a Harley must be an outlaw, which I'm not. But it was kind of like, okay, Might as well take that using in. my leverage, pulling that in. That's funny. Do you, you you have a bicycle? No, I've got a Harley. It's in the parking lot. You want to see it? Yeah, you have a Harley. And yeah, this, it's in the it, parking lot. You want to see it? <laughs> and this is, is recent, but not that recent. So, you know, um, obviously, like in the military, you know, the, today, I'm sure the landscape is drastically different than it was then, especially in regards to uh, male and female officers and, 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 and enlisted. And 
Um, that's got to be an interesting dynamic for you, right? Having been for as long as you were and now showing up going, hey, by the way, I'm a tough chick. Like, right. You know, that's just, and that's always been kind of part of your, I don't know, your your thing, which I just love. The allure of Eldana is, is like, hey, I'm not who you think I am. Right? I have all these these dichotomies underneath. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I love that about you, you know, to be like, yep, I'm here. Oh, by the way, I rode a Harley over, right? Oh yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sitting here teaching negotiation. Oh, by the way, I did it for the military for two decades, you know, and, and it's just constantly this. And then like, hey, I'm really hardcore, but then also I'm going on this missionary journey to Kenya to go help the women in Africa because God called me to. And you, you have your, your yeah, it's filled with, filled with dichotomies. I think it's a great way to put that. Um, I love that about you. So, so let's go back to negotiation, but I want to um, real quick, I want to ask you, since that came up, I want to ask you about Kenya. So you went over and did a missionary trip recently. And I did. So tell me about what spawned that in the first place. Was it, was someone talking about it? Was it in prayer time? Um, had, had you been to Africa before in military? Like, did you have a heart for that? Or was it like a, oh my gosh, what if I did this? How did that come about? Well, I actually, I've been to Tunisia before. I deployed okay. there, but didn't get to see much of it and that's northern africa anyway we're right by libya and there were obvious reasons that we were going there but uh that's so i didn't really get to tour africa or see and my church saddleback church where i go goes to rwanda a lot and i'd Mm -hmm. always it always had this little thing in the back of my head that said well maybe one day i'll do that and and it just never came to the forefront well it at Craig Deswalt's boot camp, and uh-huh. I, uh, Pastor Steve Rutenbar, who's a retired pastor from Saddleback Church, uh, w- had a booth there and was right next to mine, and I ended up sitting and talking to him for like two hours uh-huh. about his, he's been going to Kenya for over 20 years, and the, the trips they take, and the things they do there, and I, th- I was really, I kind of felt like, oh, this is to be a good thing to do. Wow. And I sort of put it aside, mm-hmm. but it was more in the forefront. And I saw him again when Craig had that Rock Your Life night. Yeah. And and I, it was smacking me upside the head that you need to go. I'm like, okay, so I have to raise money now. Now, this yeah. is a big thing with negotiation I now talk about. I have no problem asking people to pay me to speak or buy my products or services or coach with me or consult or any of that. I imagine that's gotten easier. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like I no no big deal about those things, but to ask somebody to donate for me to go on a mission trip was really hard. Wow. I don't know why. It was my own stuff coming up. I'm like, I teach about asking. What is this about? Right, but somehow that feels drastically different. Yeah, it was like, why would anybody want to donate to send me on a mission trip? I don't understand that. Not, and I've donated to help people with things. So, but sure. this is this is my own crazy psychology going on. And one of the guys in my veterans group had made a donation, and I had asked, I had put it out to them, and I put it out. I did a GoFundMe, and I put it out on Facebook, but yeah. I wasn't really pushing it. Mm-hmm. And th- then my friend calls, and the guy who donated, and says. I've been praying about this. You're supposed to go on this trip, and I'm going to start raising money for you. Mm. And I, I hung up the phone, and I thought, no, he's not. No, he's not. Yeah, so then my control freakism kicked in. I'm like, and it, it was just the nudge I needed. And then I said, well, I'm going to reach out to five people a day and ask them to donate $20. First person I asked donated $200. Wow. Second person donated $100. Yeah. Third person donated $100. And it 
really very few people donated $20. Yeah. And I had more than enough to go. And I actually took the extra money and went downtown LA and bought socks and underwear for kids. Like oh I my had gosh. 22 dozen pairs of socks and 17 dozen pairs of underwear for, for kids wow. to take over there. I filled a big duffel bag full. So I had extra money to, to do that. That oh, wasn't intentional. Beautiful. Yeah, so, so we gave them out to so many different moms for their kids. And then I went and I'm there. And so a couple days before we go, I thought, oh, we would go and I'll, we'll just do outreach and I'll be giving out food and the clothes and whatever. Yeah. And I, yeah. I'll just be doing all that. And, and so I thought, let me look at the schedule. So I look at the schedule. We're going here. Eldana speaks. We're going there. Eldana speaks. Eldana speaks. Eldana speaks. Eldana speaks. I'm like, why? Now, why? Why did that go down? That because you went with the missionary group. I'm, I'm assuming, right? Right. Yeah. So did they just know? Oh, you're a Toastmaster accredited speaker, and you're and you run workshops and all this stuff. Or well, I mean, I'm why 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 you? They knew I was a speaker, uh-huh. and and actually, I think. Uh, they heard me speak because I had a booth and I spoke at Craig's event. So they, okay. and, and then knew some of my story. I had shared some of my story with Pastor Steve. And gotcha. so they, they wanted me to share things. And the first place we went, wow. it said, Eldana speaks to the women. So we're in this church service up in a place called Mount Elgon, which it was a rough, bumpy ride to get up there, way up this mountain. And so we're in the church service and, and it was great. It was great service. And we're getting ready to go outside to give out the, we had a bag, bags of uh, maize, corn, mm-hmm. and then they had some socks and underwear in each bag and some other things. We were giving bread and things like that. And so I was going to give it to the women. And just as I'm going out, Pastor Steve leans over and says, you're not speaking to the women. You're speaking to the men. What are you going to speak to them about? Hmm. Oh, hmm. Uh, Let's think about that. Let me think about that. Can you negotiate with the devil is what I came up with. And I, I shared wow. a message. I don't even know what I shared. Whatever came on my heart, I had I taught him how to put on the full armor of God. I actually Come did on. that everywhere I was going. Like, okay, this is what you do because I do it every morning. I, like, go through. Po- That's awesome. And so I had them all the stand up. We're going to do it. Yeah, yeah, belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness. Yes, and right. I had them all doing that. And they, they were all – he told them I was in the military, and he said – when you're in Kenya, if they're leaning in, they're listening. Mm. So the, uh, every single one of those men was leaning in. Wow. And then we got ready to leave. That's outstanding. And there was a lady who had, you know, they have warring tribes go through there. And one had come through and look, and her husband, they were trying to kill her husband and he escaped. She didn't and they raped her. Oh. And she wanted us to pray for her. And um, so I, I've unfortunately experienced that in my life, but like, um, Pastor Rick Warren says, don't waste your pain. So mm. I parted the, everybody, and I got down on my knees, and I, I talked to her, and they translated in Swahili, and I prayed with her. And, and you know, so I'm like, everywhere we were going, I'm like, okay, where I know I'm coming back here, but where else or who else am I supposed to serve? And sure. every place we went, it was like, no, not them. You know, I'll come back and help them. No, not them. There's a there's a group of girls called the Mercy Girls that I'm working with, helping mm-hmm. get the Toastmasters Club started over there for for them. And uh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's so. But uh, we went to this place called the Kipsongo Slum, mm-hmm. and we got there, and these women were singing, like they have. They live in little mud huts with a tin roof and yeah. a dirt floor. Sure, like probably smaller than this room that we're in right now. Yeah. And like 10 people will sleep in there, but they're, they're singing. 
they're happy, they're joyous. I'm right. like, wow. So I shared my story, another lady shared her story, and then uh, Pastor Steve asked the ladies to pray for us. And I just started crying, because hmm. I'm like, wow, I came like, here I to- like, I don't s- need the prayer, right? I came here to serve we're them, and they're so- they, were, they prayed for me for like 10 to 15 minutes. Wow. And I was just- And so grateful, I'm sure, for yeah. the chance to sow into you and I pray. was just crying, and, and one of the ladies, Patricia, took me, her name's Patricia, and she took me into her hut, and this necklace that I'm wearing, she gifted this to me and said, pray that my son Maxwell, it's like one of her six kids, would get the money to go to school next year because school's not free over there. Wow. And it it was, I was like, okay. And I thought, I was thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll, I'll be, able, I'm thinking to myself, maybe I'll be able to sponsor him to go to school or something. Yeah, sure. So we go back to it. And, and there's all these, after we're getting in the vans and there's these ladies that had blankets with some beads and stuff for sale. And I didn't know that what they were doing with that. I mean, this uh, Patricia made makes these be- beads. Mm-hmm. And I found out that they get into little co-ops of like five or six women and they take a micro loan of $300 and they buy the materials and sell the beads. Wow. Uh, a lot of them prostitute themselves. So they're, mm. they're building little businesses to stop having right, to do that. Sell something. Well, I went, should. I went back to sleep that night and like, God shook me awake, hmm. and I had this idea. Oh, well, I'll just buy some beads and sell them with my books when I speak. Why not? And then Why you get not? to tell the story. Yeah, tell their story. Right. I'm sort of in the beads business now. <laughs> yeah, you brought your beads with me, so I don't know if uh, if you're watching. Oh. Uh, we'll show the beads. If you're listening on the stream, obviously, yeah. you can just hear the the crinkle of the beads. So these are all made from recycled magazines. They are. They're made out of magazines. Which is incredible. Like you wouldn't be able to tell unless you look closely you can see some I mean it's been painted over some. You can kind of see some of the line of like Right, where they around. they wind it. They do it all by hand. They cut them by hand. They um they make them all by hand and they sell them. And so I I bought some beads and I started telling people and people were buying them like crazy and I I took some. I actually, while I was over there, I know a friend of mine that uh, owns the Dolce Blossom shop in Claremont, uh, Vanessa, she's amazing. I I, uh, contacted her on Instagram while I was over there and I said, hey, would this be something good for your shop? Because she has things from artisans all all over. She said, oh yeah, bring some by. So she got some and then my friend uh, Nicole, who you know from Feeling Groovy Wellness, mm-hmm. um, she uh, has some in her shop, and then there's another shop that has a couple of them. And so, so then people were starting to buy them, and I'm like, I'm running out of beads. So some of the team was still over there, and I, Pastor Steve ended up, I sent some more money and brought another round of beads back, and those started to sell out. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I, the first time I doubled the money, the second time I tripled the money, and now I've, I think I've tripled the money again, and I'm just putting it all back into buying more beads. And I've bought them now. Some, uh, I'm going over the end of the month next month, and I'm. You're going back over again. Yeah, yeah. I'm called to do this. It's yeah, like I love that. That's Kenya so bead queen. That's that's what uh, somebody, a friend of mine, called me, and I'm well, like. The more this gets out, like the more women, um, predominantly women, I'm sure, the more women are able to now have a business to get out and, and do something so much different and, and again to go from from prostitution to entrepreneurship with you know 
not having yourself as a product, which is just horrendous that that still has to happen. This is such a powerful, like for us, it's a beat. It's a, like, what does a necklace go for roughly? 20 bucks. 20 bucks, right? So for us, oh, it's 20 bucks. It's, you know, four Frappuccinos. But I'm, I'm certain, right, that over in Kenya, $20, and this is 20 US, right? Yeah. So what does $20 US do for uh, for a woman who's who's making these? Well, it makes them not have to decide, decide, do I feed my kids? Do I get them to school? Do I get medical care? Oh, I can do all these things. So 20 bucks, you can do it all. Well, you can start, it starts to build the ability to do that. Just incredible. Um, I think so often, you know, we, we get this little, the microcosm, the bubble of, you know, for us in Orange County or, or wherever we live, especially in the States. Um, and, and, you, and you forget, you know, I remember the first time going to Fiji and watching, you know, something similar, you know, seeing, seeing these little budding entrepreneurs, right, doing something there. And I think, man, the average person here, maybe let's just say makes $15, $20 an hour US, let's say, and call it 15 bucks. The average Fijian's making like $2 an hour if they're lucky enough to have a job somewhere. And that's $2 Fijian, which is about a dollar US. So so you know, their money is like one to 15 almost, not just in, it's not just in how much US dollars for how many of their dollars, but also in what the wages are. There's such a, a vast difference. So, you know, when you're able to, when you're, when you're able to say, take this, this is the equivalent of probably selling like in your hometown in Africa for a couple hundred bucks, maybe, you know, depending on what it is. That's incredible. So you're doing beads full time. Um, did you set up a website for the beads or how, how, how do people reach out if they want to connect with you? Social media or a site or right now got? I have, well, if you go to basketsandbeadskenya.com, it redirects <laughs> to my Facebook page right now because I, I don't have a website yet. This is very grassroots. And like we were talking about earlier, and that's what we're doing. Right? I'm doing a lot of research to see how to make this go because I'm looking at, at doing some media around this and, and really having it uh, in. I've got my eye on a couple of big stores to put them in and see how that's going to work. But I'm I'm researching how to import and I'm setting up a nonprofit and I'm researching wow. all of that. So it, it's it's taken a minute. People are like, do you have a website? I want to order them. I'm like, not oh, yet. Who but, cares? But Message it was, me on Facebook. Right. Text yeah. Me. You, can, you can go to Baskets and Beads. Uh, Baskets and Beads by Artisans of Kenya is the Facebook page. But actually, people are showing up to uh, work with this project and donate their time. I yeah. had uh, somebody who offered to do a website and he just emailed me back and said, yeah, let's oh, set awesome. up a time to talk. And uh, my my accountant is like going to help me set up the the nonprofit, and she said I won't charge you for my time. And I've had somebody uh, offer offer to do a logo for no cost, and it's things beca- because this is helping people. So you didn't have to negotiate too hard for these things. No, I didn't. <laughs> okay. I didn't. But there there will probably be some negotiation when I start. Like when I wholesale these to places, you know, we have to have a discussion on what's fair and reasonable. Absolutely. And, and I'm I'm researching the the ethical trade laws and such to make sure right yeah there's all kinds of things that that go into this but you know when you you never I never expected to be in the beads business obviously I'm still speaking and training but sure but you know but this is you can tell there's a ton of passion and fire in your belly around this and 
Um, when, when when something speaks to you, right? When God speaks to you and says, "This is something you're supposed to do," I can see it in your eyes. Like you you can't be helped. So we will. Uh, I'll make sure I link in the show notes and in the description. If, if you're watching this on YouTube or Facebook, um, there'll be a link to to connect with Eldana. Um, if you want to find out the beads about trainings about all different stuff, um, let's switch gears for a second. I want to kind of as we get into the um, the twilight of our interview together. Um, when did your book come out? How long ago was this Think Like a Negotiator book? Think Like a Negotiator came out the beginning of 2014. Right. So a couple years out already now. Um, 50 Ways to Create Win-Win Results by Understanding the Pitfalls to Avoid. Um, again, in, in looking through, you know, I've, I've, I've had a chance to go through some of your book. I'm not going to lie. Not all of it, but some of your book. And the thing I love is couple things. One is the way you teach, as you already did here and you do in your live events, is very experiential metaphor-based, right? So example-based. You're, you're going to say, hey, you need to be able to take on a power position in negotiation, let's say. And then you're going to tell a story from your time in the Air Force or your time as a defense contractor with your $100 million uh, maintenance contract and explain how you did that or how that shows up. Um, I love that as a teacher myself. I, I think very few people can master that art. And I feel like you've done that really, really well with the book. And uh, I haven't been to your live training, but I know I've heard rave reviews from many friends, uh, mutual friends of ours that have been. Um, have you always been? Have you always been kind of a, a example, metaphor style teacher? Did you learn the art of like teaching? Because it's one thing to do a task, right? Like you said with motorcycle riding, it's one thing to be able to be a good rider, but it's another thing to teach riding. Um, and it's one thing to negotiate. It's another thing to teach negotiation. How, how long ago did you start teaching negotiation? I, st I started speaking around 2006, actually, on behalf of a nonprofit, the Women's Peace Campaign. Going into, we were going into shelters and doing leadership and self-esteem workshops for women so awesome. in, in crisis. And I thought, wow, I really like this speaking thing. Yeah. And so I started doing my, like, you probably remember my pink biker chick brand and take I control do. of the handlebars of your, your life. first and, big brand, right? Right. And it just never, it never really was going anywhere outside the motorcycle industry. And it was ending up being like t-shirts It's and almost such. like too gimmicky, right? It's like, it was really a cool idea. But it's almost too gimmicky. You're like, I'm a pink biker chick, pink everything, bikes everything. Yeah. And, and, and uh, like, did you see, like, it did it limit maybe, like, who you were, like, what you were able to do or how you were able to show up? Well, what was interesting, I mean, in the motorcycle world, people obviously would resonate with that because it's motorcycle related. But there's not really a lot of places to speak. That's but not out, who you're going after, though. Right. right? But outside of that the whole motorcycle thing it was like oh that's cute or whatever but people weren't taking me seriously right and I had so many people I, I before I even wrote the book I would do things I would do uh, consulting with people and help them I've helped people uh, get back money or fight get back money from deposits or fight yeah. um, somebody like I have had a client who their person attempted to charge back twice and and even though they had a signed agreement. So yep. I, I helped construct the letters and stuff to, that made sure that they got, like they did it like four times. And, wow. And uh, I, I was behind constructing the letters and helping put together the documentation that sure. got that money back. So I, I did a lot of that. And a lot of people said to me, why aren't you teaching this? I'm like, who wants to learn that? Really? It's just a thing that right? people need every now and again. Uh, but then, then I, I, started to realize that, wow, maybe people do want to learn this and started to teach it. But I've been 
with trainers that showed me how to do experiential training and experiential games. And I, I thought, like there's, you can't learn negotiation by listening to it. I can sit here and tell you a lot of strategies, but unless you really get out and do it, you're not going to get good at it. I love that. So, so your workshops are like, like you said, the first day you're teaching stuff, and then the next couple of days you jump into games, experiences, all hands-on. So you're doing like real negotiations with people in the class? Yes, definitely. <laughs> Such a cool idea. Right, and in, and in some of it's in fun games that take you out of your head of the actual, like, no, I'm not going to have you sit across from somebody, and you're going to have this big contract that you're going to negotiate. Yeah. But instead you're going to uh, – be like I, one of the games is based on my deployment to the Middle East where I had to go negotiate with people from all different countries and the things that you have to think of when you're in negotiating with people from different cultures right. and different countries like you, you can't expect them to negotiate the same and it's very funny to watch people's paradigms show up even mm. though I taught about it and then here we go into this game and the main thing of the game is building relationships and they don't build any relationships Right. Oh, that's fine. I mean, there, there's got to be such a learning curve with it. So um, that that sounds like like a blast. So I know you're you're doing your live events um, in Orange County. Yes, or, Orange County. Yep. Yeah, so Orange County, California. Great time. If you want to pick up the book, it's Think Like a Negotiator. You can get it on Amazon, or where where should you go to get the book? Well, if you get it on Amazon, you're you'll pay a little more but if you could get it on my website, oh, eldonlewisfernandez.com. Send it right there. And then also thinking like a negotiator, you could contact me and make an offer and we could negotiate for the price. That is a fun game. So if you're listening to this, find Eldana Lewis Fernandez on Facebook, uh, I'm sure whatever social media platforms, um, and you can go get the book directly from her. Um, it's available wherever books are sold, I suppose. Um, and ask her to negotiate the price because why not? Now, she's a pretty stiff negotiator, so she'll probably say no, but maybe not. I'll bet you you've been you've been known to to teach people negotiation through purchasing your book, right? Yes, I've yeah. had people come. Why not? Up. It's very funny. I was speaking at the Toastmasters District One uh, conference last, like November 2016, after I became an accredited speaker through Toastmasters, and the the international president was there in the audience. Mm -hmm. And so I got done with my talk, and he says to me, "Oh." Your book's 20 bucks. Well, do you have a better offer? Can I get a negotiated deal for that? I'm like, yes, you can take the $29.95 retail price of the $20 special offer I'm giving you. Which one would you like? <laughs> He's like, good answer. He's like, I just learned a valuable lesson. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Well, Donna, thank you so much for making it down and, and hanging out with me. Um, it was a blast, and I learned a ton about you that I, I didn't even know yet. So um, every time we get to sit down, it's an absolute pleasure and honor, and uh, and I really, really enjoy our time. Um, good luck with the beads. I'm for you. We're praying for you on this. Um, I hope people uh, pick up your book, Think Like a Negotiator, and uh, thanks for thanks for sh sharing your time with us today. No, thanks for having me. It was great to be here. Awesome. Whoa, my thanks to Eldana. Wow, that was that was so much fun. Uh, it was great because she came in studio, of course. She was sitting in the podcast studio together with me, and we just we just had a blast. I really, really enjoy her. 
One of the things I love, too, is she had such a great heart, as you know. Um, make sure you, you check out her beads. She's been uh, going, you know, all the way over to the new continent of Africa. Well, not the new continent, but, you know, for her, it was a new place to be. Um, and spending time with these, these women in the villages making beads and helping to get their beads over to the marketplace. So over in America, it's a lot easier to sell these things. Um, and everything goes back into getting more beads from the women, so they're being taken care of as well. It's a really cool, very productive, and it's one of the positive things. You know, it's sometimes some of these programs, you know, you like, you know that you're not making it better because when you buy something, now they're stuck in like a bad place. Or well, it's different though. What these women are actually doing is the more they're able to make from the beads, they're taking money, saving it, and being able to basically do their own businesses. And it's getting them out of a poverty place. So I'm really excited for her, and I fully support uh, the work she's doing with the beads. Um, and I just I love what she's doing. So make sure you check out Eldana on Facebook, uh, uh, Instagram, everywhere on social media. We have all the links in the show notes. So go in the show notes and follow Eldana Luis Fernandez. Pick up a book or two on Amazon, Heart of a Military Woman, uh, Think Like a Negotiator, great books, and we have a lot of fun with that. And let me know what you thought. Next week, we're going to come right back, of course, on Tuesday morning, and we're going to be talking a little more about getting things done, getting things done and productivity, because that seems to be the hot topic right now getting things done, productivity. Um, remember, as this lands today, it's probably already too late, but uh, um, you can see me speaking today in Utah with Kirk Cameron and releasing my book. Monday, August 13th, it's not too late. You can still join me for the book uh, release party in Orange County, California. If you're, if you're around the area, come on out. Tickets are free. I think we have a few VIP tickets left, so make sure you check that out in the show notes as well, and you can find more about the book, uh, fireboxbook.com. All right, I'll see you next week. Have an awesome weekend.